0: And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks a man. This is just the beginning. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, but that, as always, is all you need to know about me. Um, The idea behind this podcast is just to... It goes to my fundamental belief that films are actually very difficult to make. Very few people set out to make a bad film. And so I want to explore the stories behind the scenes, sometimes making of, sometimes promoting... Sometimes the sheer heft that got a film into being um, and the complications in doing so, just in getting something moving. And for our first film this week, um, it it very much fits that, that this was a movie that a studio pretty much gambled the house on. So let's have a clip from it and then we'll get into the story. No no, 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 volunteer! I volunteer! I volunteer as tribute. Uh, I believe we have a volunteer. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. No. Go find mom. No. Go find mom I know. No. I'm so sorry. No. Find mom. No. no. Emily, go find mom. No. 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 Dramatic turn of events here in District 12. Well, District 12's very first volunteer. Bring her up. That then was Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss uh, volunteering as tribute in 2012's The Hunger Games. Um, the first, as it turned out, of four movies in the series based on three books. Originally it was supposed to be three films, but then Hollywood was going through its trend there. Uh, inspired by Harry Potter of splitting the last book up. Didn't particularly work too well for the Divergent films, but certainly when it came to the economics of The Hunger Games, it made an awful lot of sense. Um, but then economics was underpinning quite a lot of what was going on with, with the Hunger Games series. And I think it's overlooked that um, whilst the film became a very big success very quickly, um, it was an enormous risk, an enormous risk, to the point where Lionsgate, the studio behind it, pretty much gambled the house on making the film. And, I mean, we we need to go back to the late 2000s for this story. Because Lionsgate, in the position it was then, was a very different entity to the one we know now. In that it was making its money primarily off Tyler Perry films and off the Saw franchise. I mean, it, its roots were heavily in horror. If you remember the old Lionsgate logo, it was, you know, the great big clunking gate. Very, very horror. It was not even undertones. Horror overtones to it. As opposed to the nice cloudy, almost DreamWorksy look to the uh, to, to to its opening logo these days, um, and so it was this small film, uh, this this small studio. Um I, I and much, much smaller than, than than the traditional studios, who were also in the mix for the rights to the Hunger Games books. Now the Hunger Games books, of which there are three, the Hunger Games, Catching Fire and Mocking Jay, were written by Suzanne Collins, um and they'd sold over ten million copies. And that inevitably brought them to the attention of of Hollywood. And understandably so. This was Hollywood uh, with its checkbook out, um, just as the Harry Potter series was coming into its final straight, um, to the point where each of those films was was edging close to a billion dollars um at the box office each side I think it was only the last one in the end that crossed it or um but but harry potter was enormous business uh, and people were looking to follow that warner brothers model what was the next harry potter was you know was a question being widely asked so twilight was it, it, the genesis of the twilight films was around this time the genesis of the maze runner films i mean that was going on um, a, a little bit down the line. Um, but in the case of The Hunger Games, the, the stereotypical Hollywood bidding war was starting to bubble up. So Nina Jacobson, uh, producer, uh, got hold of the rights, um, got, got hold of the rights to Suzanne Collins and, and started putting um, the, the Hollywood package together. Which studio was going to be in the mix to make it? Now, unsurprisingly, uh, pretty much every studio was interested. Uh, amongst the majors, I mean, Warner Brothers inevitably, after its Harry Potter success, and aware that Harry Potter was coming to an end, um, was, was heavily in the mix um, and, looking, uh, and, and looking at acquiring the rights to the Hunger Games and making the films. The absolute underdog, and I think this is often lost now, because we're what nearly a decade on from this particular bidding war the absolute underdog was Lionsgate this was a small studio whose most expensive film was 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 some way shy of what it would cost to realize the Hunger Games um and it just really 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 targeted um the rights um and it targeted them in a very intelligent way I mean it, it 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 the way that they went about wooing Suzanne Collins for the rights to the books was it was a very, very personal, uh, you know, a personal level. So no one expected them to win. I mean, that's crucial. Nobody at the start of this process expected Lionsgate to walk away with the rights to the Hunger Games movies. And it's worth iterating that there was no guarantee the Hunger Games was going to become a juggernaut. It's just the books clearly lent themselves to 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 it the the whole battle royale lord of the flies uh concept hugely cinematic and so lionsgate bosses started um got in touch with suzanne collins and they started personally assuring her that they would stay true to the books um if you remember go back to when the first harry potter film harry potter and the philosopher's stone sorcerer's stone if you're in america but philosopher's stone um was and, and they were coming up with names of directors for that and steven spielberg was was interested in doing the first harry potter film but the the reason that, that as the story goes the reason that spielberg um part, departed the project and ultimately didn't sign on is he would want to make change it he would want to make it, it, it understandably a spielberg film and author jk rowling knew what she wanted and so eventually Chris Columbus came on board to direct those first two Harry Potter films because he was more likely, you know, he, he was going to see to J.K. Rowley and Steven Spielberg wasn't. Mm-hmm. So in the case of The Hunger Games, they assured um, Suzanne Collins that they would stay true to the book. And also, at the point of pitching, and we're going to come back to the marketing of the film because I think it's crucial. Uh, at the point of pitching, the company, Lionsgate's head of marketing, mapped out the strategy for the film, mapped out to Collins how they were going to go about selling the film of her books. And as it turned out, the deal to snap up the rights, apparently in the scheme, of only cost, I say only, it's more money than I'll ever have, only cost $200,000. I mean, it looked like a bargain. The problem was there was the physical cost of making the film. And the problem was Lionsgate was in no position to pay the physical cost of making the film. So, again, let's put some necessary grounding and context in. At this point, Lionsgate had not turned a profit for four or five years. Um, it was under quite heavy financial pressure. Um, it was. Uh, uh, it, it needed a huge hit. It needed a statement film. It needed a gamble, and it gambled everything on the Hunger Games. So it's psych- uh, Suzanne Collins co-wrote the script. Gary Ross, um, Pleasantville, Greatville, Seabiscuit Biscuit, well, uh, signed on to direct. And Lionsgate did take advantage of an assortment of tax breaks, but it was still going to cost 78 million dollars just for the negative cost of the film. And negative cost is right, because this did film on celluloid. I'll come back to that shortly. Um... But to find that $78 million, uh, what Lionsgate had to do is it had to go down its list of projects that were in development and it had to cut budgets. It had to it had to rob the budgets of lots of its other films um, to be able to get all the money together to make the first Hunger Games movie. Now the reason it needed to gamble there was another uh, another saga going on in the backdrop of this and that was um uh, and this was relating to an investor by the name of Carl Icahn. and I can um a fairly notorious Wall Street figure with a reputation for buying up the shares in companies, getting on the board of said companies, maximising his return. I mean, we're using very gentle terms for what I think most of us realise he would have been up to um, and, and basically walking away with a profit come what may and. Um, and he was sniffing around Lionsgate um, and he bought a 14.5% stake in the company and was adamant that Lionsgate should stick to what it was good at. He disagreed with the new blockbuster direction. That the studio was heading in, so he thought Lionsgate should be making low-budget horror films. And the Saw films have been so inordinately profitable that he, you know, there was some degree of logic to what he was saying. But conversely, this was not a profitable company at this point. It was vulnerable to someone like ICANN coming in um, and, and and taking over and and getting control. And for his fourteen and a half percent, he wanted a say. Now he ultimately didn't get it, but it's important to note. At the backdrop that Lionsgate was doing its most ambitious project that it had ever done, it was having a boardroom fight to just keep control of its own company, and it was an extraordinary backdrop. Um, that I, I mean, a saga in itself that that ended up with legalities and such like, which I'm not going to go into here, um, but they're fairly easy to find out about. Um, And all the while, it it had to keep The Hunger Games on track. Now, in terms of the actual physical production of the movie, that actually went, in the scheme of physical production of movies, by, by most accounts, relatively smoothly. I mean, clearly it was a demanding film to make. It was very exterior-driven. But it shot from May 2011 through to September 2011. It had to shoot on film, interestingly, um, because Gary Ross, again, the director, needed the reliability. And so now, instantly, most blockbuster movies are shot on digital because digital technology is faster the quality of it is better but back in 2011 there just wasn't room in the schedule for um, for any kind of digital technical gremlins and there had been those experiences with some films shot with digital cameras at that point the technology wasn't that advanced Ross just couldn't gamble on it so he i i mean he did have a truncated post production period to work with here. It was only six months between the wrapping wrapping up and the release of the movie and so he went on film um and so the film wrapped up but the, the what also in the midst of all of this took the Hunger Games, from uh, from the, the, you know the, the, a dream blockbuster project really for to Lionsgate into realizing its potential, was uh, as much the marketing campaign. Now I say that as someone I, I really like the first Hunger Games film. I really like the second one actually. I, I wasn't that keen on the Mockingjay movies for an assortment of reasons. Although the book is just insane and, and far more fun. But that first film, um, I mean, they, they, they knew they had a good film on their hands. But also they knew they had um, a, a really ahead of its time in many ways marketing campaign because Lionsgate aggressively digitally promoted their movie. Um, and they were able to put together a marketing campaign that by most measures should have cost nearly 100 million dollars for about 45-50 million dollars for the promotion of this movie and i remember reporting on the the hunger games at the time and and every week every day at some point there were new messages coming out, there are interesting things, there, there was a promotion, there, there was a clearly coherent promotion that worked with some guidelines, I only d- discovered this while researching this this particular podcast, and guidelines such as, you can't use the phrase, let the games begin, you can't talk about children dying, I mean, it's a harsh film, it's a 12, you know, it thoroughly earns that 12, 12A certificate, um, and, and they wanted to shield that from the promotion of the film, instead they focused heavily on Jennifer Lawrence, now Jennifer Lawrence, a huge, Savvy piece of casting and at the point she was cast, her star was in the Ascendancy and the Hunger Games would really cement it. And don't forget, around the time she was in the X-Men First Class ensemble as well, she'd already got a much deserved Oscar nomination for Winter's Bone. What a film that is. Um And so they based an awful lot of the promotion around that. But there's a New York Times article that came out around the time of the film's release. And I remember it at the time. um, And it just broke down how intense the marketing effort on The Hunger Games... Actually, was that Lionsgate had devised um, a platform by platform release plan, and by that I mean, uh, you know, Facebook one platform, Twitter another platform, um, physical media, etc., etc., etc. And and various bits of this, and it it, it was prepared in advance, were timed to the minute. I mean, quite extraordinary. And apparently, there was a a, a heavily color-coded spreadsheet, the likes of which I never want to see in my life. Um, But I, I, I mean, to give an example, there was um one particular poster that was unlocked for the movie um where bits of it were spread across a hundred different websites and just the work involved in coordinating that would just i mean it's just yeah it just it just makes me come out in a cold sweat really the film uh released in march of 2012 off the back of this phenomenal phenomenal effort and the expectation into the release weekend was that, that Lionsgate had a massive hit on its hands. That it had a $100 million, uh, opening movie. And as it would turn out, that, that's pretty much exactly uh, what it had. In that its opening weekend, $152,535,747 in the US alone shattered any record. ...that Lionsgate had. A a utterly... I, I mean, a transformative release... For a for a studio, its worldwide gross uh, was just shy of seven hundred million dollars, and not only had Lionsgate richly won its gamble, richly won its gamble, because the DVD sales were were through the roof as well. It also had its first bona fide full franchise. Um, It eventually bought Summit Entertainment, so it sort of acquired the Twilight one. It did a couple of Now You See Me films. Um, Saw obviously is a is a franchise its own right, but what. What I kind of mean is it's a big intended to be a blockbuster from day one franchise and it had it and it had the big young adult franchise at the point that young adult was really starting to spike. As a consequence of that, obviously it pushed ahead with the sequels. Gary Ross would depart them just because of the speed um, involved in turning the next one catching fire around and Francis Lawrence would go on to direct the rest of the films but Lionsgate, from that point onwards, that was their promotion to the big league of movie studios, and they did it um, that they did it in utter fairness to them by gambling the house by finding this big, enormous project that they believed in fighting against all the big companies around them for it, winning the rights and then delivering on it. I think it's an extraordinary story. And I think as much as the Hunger Games films really hold up, um, especially the first two, I think the the, the, the sheer David and Goliath uh, behind the scenes story, just to to get Lionsgate to do it and the ramifications of that since, is extraordinary in its own right. Let's move on to film two then, uh, this week. And I'm going to go back to um, a, a surprise comedy hit of 1991 this time. Uh, I'm back in my, my, my 90s. Um, I, I do have a, a, a slight leaning towards that particular era. Here's a clip and then we'll get into the story. Perfect. You know what the cook said about him? He said he killed a man in a knife fight. He said he slid him from neck to nuts. I'm not happy about this. This guy's a cowboy, one of the last real men. He's untamed, a mustang. We're trained ponies. it will do us good to be in his world for a while. Do us good? He was hanging the help. He was helping us. This guy is not normal, I'm telling you. Did you see his eyes? He's got crazy eyes. He's a lunatic. I'm telling you, we are going into the wilderness being led by a lunatic. He's behind me, isn't he? Time to turn in. Good Good night. So then, that was 1991 City Slickers, starring Billy Crystal, directed by Ron Underwood... And this one was a genuine sleeper hit in a year where, um, where, where that, that was dominated at the box office by Terminator 2 Judgment Day, by Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. But also in a year where there there were some high-profile disappointments. Hudson Hawk starring Bruce Willis, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Much had been expected of that. At the end of the year came Steven Spielberg's hook. Much had been expected of that. Um, and so... Uh, in the midst of in the midst of this heavyweight summer of um, of films, um, along came City Slickers, penned by Lau Gans and Babalu Mundell, a brilliant comedy writing team. They penned the screenplay also for 1989's Parenthood, one of my favourite comedy films, um, and they um, they conceived the film with Billy Crystal, whose idea City Slickers was. Now, for Crystal, the the film came to him um in the in, in after the huge success of when harry met sally um and talking to uh direct the director of that film rob reiner put together castle rock um his own production company castle rock needed needed films and so reiner um reiner inquired of crystal if he had any ideas for movies um and so yeah he, he did um and he, he the, the idea of a city slickers came to him at a point where he was just watching a documentary on the telly and a whole bunch of friends were scuba diving and one of the divers said it helped the midlife crisis i was having and that 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 pinged in crystal's head and he wrote about this extensively in his excellent memoir born standing up which I, i i highly recommend um, and so he started putting together the idea of a trio of friends who go on um, who go on a cattle a, a, cattle, a, fant- a, a cattle drive um, and come up against a, a, a trail boss, and um, he could see the comedy potential in it um, pretty much from the off. Um, and so the project as it happened off the back of that came together really surprisingly quickly um, because Castle Rock was in its infancy it was looking for you know it was looking for a slate of projects it wanted to work with Crystal Crystal had a longer term eye on directing films which he'd come to with Mr Saturday Night uh, later in the decade Um, but they um, but, but City Slickers moved and moved fast to the point where it was ready to go in 1990. And so um, the the, the cast was put together. Uh, Billy Crystal, Bruno Kirby and Rick Moranis were put together as the cast. Now, Crystal and Bruno Kirby, consequently, there are all sorts of stories about the the late Bruno Kirby, so wonderful in Good Morning Vietnam and and many, many other films. Um, But there there were rumours that Crystal and Kirby didn't exactly click, but I couldn't really get much below the bottom of those um you'll notice that um i mentioned rick moranis um in the original cast and and indeed he was um and so the 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 main three were cast um they went off for the the requisite training that they needed to do um kirby as it happened um was allergic to horses and didn't enjoy the production of the film an awful lot at all Um, his allergies were quite strong And before before they filmed every day, he had to take an injection of medicine just to be able to to film his scenes. Um, However, the the case of Moranis was um, was really, really incredibly tragic. Um, I mean, it's pretty well known that um, his wife was diagnosed with a serious illness uh, and he would ultimately lose his wife um, and he ducked out of the film. I mean, there was no feasible way to do it. So he left the project and in came Daniel Stern, then then enjoying success off Home Alone at the end of 1990. But he came late on in his place um, and didn't actually do the horse riding as it happened because his his character is supposed to be the least confident horse rider. And so he appears in the film. However, 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 my favourite story um, to do with City Slickers, is about the casting of Jack Palance in the role of Curly. And I, I mean, I remember watching the Oscars uh, when Billy Crystal was um, hosting, when Jack Palance won his Oscar. And it was just incredible. And and Crystal was just riffing, uh, riffing on Palance. Because uh, Palance won Palance's Oscar that year was the first award. And all through the rest of the show, Crystal, a terrific ad terrific stand-up, um, j- just kept making cracks, um, uh, uh, basically the indestructible nature of, of Palance. But he was actually the original choice for the role of Curly in the film, um, but wasn't available. So Crystal started um, thinking around, and the name Charles Bronson came up. Now, I've been having a little bit of a, a Charles Bronson fest of late. I've just watched Once Upon a Time in the West and um great, and and just just what i'd forgotten just how wonderful he is in those films by the time it came to city slickers he was in the midst of death wish sequels basically um but um crystal thought well he he might fit the role of curly um and so he got in touch with his agent um just to see if bronson might be uh, interested in the role now i have to do a spoiler at this point so if you've never seen city slickers um and it's not a, a, a severity of spoiler it's enough of a spoiler for me to warn you about it so I, I figure i'd give you a good 20 second run up to to it at this point um and it's the fact that the character of Curly doesn't make it to the end of the film. Bizarrely, the character of Curly effectively makes it into the sequel when a twin brother comes along. Um, but nonetheless, um, the, the part that Bronson was offered uh, of this, you know, this, this crusty trail boss um, wouldn't have seen him get to the end of the movie. It would be fair to say Charles Bronson was not impressed with this at all. Now, chums, this is a very family friendly podcast and I have to tick a box every every time I upload it saying whether the language uh, is clean and appropriate for everybody. I've tried to keep it that way, which is against my day to day demeanour. So I'm going to substitute one of the words coming up um, and we'll kind of see if you can work out uh, which one it is. So. Crystal was told by Charles Bronson's agent to expect a phone call. And the phone call truly came. And Bronson's first word to Crystal were, at you. And it's just like, what? And so Crystal was just wait- waiting. Um, you know, w- was this a wind-up? Was this the real thing? Um, but then Bronson launched into a tirade. Um, and, uh, 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 and Crystal writes about this in the Born Standing Up book. And he just reiterated it. Um, and he said, I'm dead on page 64. How dare you send this to me? You have a lot of nerve. I don't die in my films. Yeah, Um. Yeah, fairly easy to refute, but let, let, let's keep spoiler free. Um. And, and they went back and forth. And, and Crystal did try to insist to Bronson that it was it was a great a, a great part. And Bronson just said, no, it's not. I'm dead on page 60 yogurt four, and and hung up the phone. Um and that was that. It, it was done. And, and Crystal a little bit shell shot. But then shortly after, um the phone rang again, and this time it turned out Jack Palance's availability had opened up. Um and so and and so fortuitously things came. things basically f- Came, came fell into place but not without having to go through that quite incredible story of, of the actor who as it turned out would turn down an Oscar winning role um, and Crystal wrote about this actually he wrote about um uh, he, he wrote about when the film ended up playing out of competition at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, and, you know, it, and, uh, it, I mean, City Slickers was Castle Rock's first film. I think that's worth iterating. Um, and so, but the, the, the test scores, the audience, the early audience reactions were coming in strong. Um, and th- it would be fair to say, I think Bronson was aware of this. And so Crystal wrote about when he went to the Cannes Film Festival with the movie. And he said, I spied Charles Bronson sitting on a couch with Sean Penn and I'm quoting directly, Bronson and I made eye contact, and I nodded slightly towards him, toward him, um, bracket, though I wanted to say, yoghurt who, um, and he quietly got up and left, and, and that was it, that was it, and, there was uh, uh, the, the actual shoot itself was fairly straightforward, apart from Jack Palance, actually. And, and he is. Br- I mean, if you've never seen Shane um, and I was inspired to watch Shane off the back of watching City Slickers, I watched them that way around. But Shane is just great, 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 greaty, great. Um, but the, 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 the init- there was some initial frostiness are uh, between Jack Palance uh, and and the casting crew on day one of shooting and they, they I think they probably sort of expected it that that here is the you know here is this actor that brings so much gravitas so much just by walking on a set i i interviewed Dexter Fletcher once for Eddie the Eagle um and Eddie the Eagle a great film um really really fun family pg rated film as well and i really love it for that look Dexter Fletcher said when he cast Christopher Walken in that film, he wanted an actor who, as soon as you walked in, the audience would know that there was a presence, that here was someone bringing, you know, some history with them. Just, just by you know, just by walking out, you know, by just looking at Christopher Walken, that that, that he brings something more than if you would just got a faceless character actor with no, no disrespect to faceless character actors, and and I, I I think that was the case with Jack Palance as well, and when he was quite grumpy and snappy and frosty. On the first day of shooting. I think they feared the worst. But then it turned out. Um, he, he would later confess to, to Crystal. And, and you know. it was quite late in his career. He made this film. But he, he confessed to Crystal. He always got nervous. On his first day of shooting. And it's just, I think that's incredible. And, and, you know, there's a kind of cliche that as you get older, you lose your nerves. And I do think it's a cliche because I think you're just as much a human as you get older as when you're younger. For all the experience, if you're still putting yourself out there, um, you do get the nerves. And so once they were over that bump, the shoot, and it was an outdoor shoot, and, and, you know, the logistics of it were quite tricky, Um and, you know, Crystal was kicked quite heavily by a calf at one point during one of the key scenes, Um, you know, th- this was comedy actors at points doing action sequences, Um but it wrapped up, um and, and, and they got to the end, and, they got they generated castle rocks first hit and a real standout film in in the summer of 1991 and there were you know there was some good i mean backdraft um backdraft was that summer um Julia roberts hit big was sleeping with the enemy i don't have an awful lot of time for really but there were hits coming out um but this was the one that didn't uh, that that wasn't expected. And if you fast forward in 1993, I remember the summer of 1993, the build-up. There was all this hype and build-up about Sleepless in Seattle was the sleeper hit of the summer. And it was almost like preordained that it was going to be the sleeper hit of that summer. Um, that that it was expected. The press had said, and when it became a hit, it's just like told you it was a sleeper hit. But the whole definition of a sleeper hit is you don't really see it coming, and I don't think that many people saw City Slickers coming. Um, and it's got some lovely comedy, and he's got what I really like about the script actually is is what what Lau gowns and Babalu Mondel are really good at. He's just having human conversations about relatable things that sometimes the characters just sit and talk about stuff and it's not stuff that that you know is about saving the world or anything like that but it's just relatable funny witty stuff about day-to-day life and the struggles of day-to-day life and i, I really love city slickers for that <laughs> um the big box office success did uh, castle rock wanted a sequel. Billy Crystal agreed to make the sequel. Bruno Kirby didn't return. Jack Palance did. John Lovitz came in for... um, effectively in place of Bruno Kirby. And it would be John Lovitz's first above-the-title credit. Um, But the film just didn't recapture the magic of that first film um, and and the sheer fun of that first film. Um, And as a consequence, the City Slickers series is is a two-film affair. I mean, we saw quite a lot of this in the night. Sister Act, for instance... Um, you know, really fun opening film. The the film that comes along, that then the sequel that just kind of redoes it, um, doesn't quite gel in the same way. Although I would still argue that a very Brady sequel, um, a film I will talk about at some point, is one of the most underrated comedies of the '90s and one of the best comedy sequels of all time. And I, I, I'll have that fight at some point. In the case of City Slickers, though, what we're left with is a film that's never had a. I, I mean, it's it's there's a fairly decent Blu-ray of it in the US, and it does come along on, uh, on streaming services, uh, legal streaming services and such like. Um, but I, d- I just think it's such a joyful, gleeful, funny film. A whole lot of fun. Doesn't outstates welcome. Um, and, and, and has that Charles Bronson story just at the heart of it. I love it. That, then, has been the latest episode of Film Stories. Now, um, quite a lot happening in the world of film stories, which I I, I will do a special just to talk you through, uh, hopefully over the next few days, if all goes to plan. In the interim... Please, uh, if you can, more than ever, please help us spread the word if you enjoy this podcast. I'm quite happy if you're quite quiet if you don't. Um, but but either way, just, just tell the truth. Tell tell your feelings of it. Um, I am on Twitter, at Simon Brew. If you can possibly follow um, at the, the Film Stories uh, Twitter account, at Film Stories Pod, that is great. If you can subscribe to us on YouTube, youtube.com slash filmstories, hugely appreciated. Uh, our website is www.filmstoriespod.com filmstories.co.uk. But most of all, thank you so much for the support. I mean, this is episode 20. And when I started, I had no idea we'd get this far. Um, And by Lord, the, the plans ahead are ambitious and terrifying. Couldn't do any of them without you. Thanks a lot. And I'll be back soon with some more film stories. Take care.